Okay, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your great grace. We've, we've had a chance just to share in fellowship and sing about your holiness. Father, sing about the grace that you've shown us that allows us to come before your throne. And Lord, it's because of what Jesus did. We've just celebrated that at Easter, his death, his burial and his resurrection. Father, that what he did opened the gateway back to you, restored that broken relationship with you. And because of that grace, we are given the gift of eternal life. Father, we, we sang about that, that it's glory to Jesus and what he did. And as we look at today's passage, I pray that you would just open our hearts, open our minds, give us ears to hear the very thing, the very message for us today. Lord, it's easy to point the finger at, at other people and say, you're not doing what's right. But Father, we're all in the same boat. We are all born into a state of sin. Whether we do what's right or not, we all need to be shown your grace and respond to it. So Father, as we uh, have this chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Romans read to us, Father, just touch our hearts. Give us the wisdom and the understanding we need to be able to hear your heart in this. And Father, we look forward to Duncan just sharing that passage with us afterwards. So thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 29. Therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, 
their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were, had, were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have written the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Um, Francis, uh, it's a, a big passage for us to look at this morning, and we need God's help for it, so I'm going to pray again for us, if you can join with me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are conscious that as we come to this passage in Romans, Lord, we know uh, that it says some difficult things for us to hear. But Father, we also know that it is your good word for us. Uh, we know, Heavenly Father, that the gospel is your power to save all those who believe. And that it is a great declaration, a great announcement that brings great joy. So Father, as we hear this word this morning, give us, by your spirit, please move in each of us. Please, Father, don't let anyone here go away from this place uh, unmoved by your word. Uh, may we each, um, Lord, in humility have our own brokenness exposed uh, but not for its own sake, but so that we might see more clearly, so that we might rejoice more fully in what you have done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Well, friends, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a woman called Justine who boarded an, air, uh, an airplane from London to Cape Town in South Africa. You might have heard about this story, uh, this woman called Justine. Uh, she was a communications director at a large media company, uh, and she was going to visit a family on her holiday in South Africa. Uh, before get, getting on the plane, Justine wrote a comment on the social media network Twitter. Uh, she sort of sent it off, and it was an off-the-cuff and poorly worded comment about AIDS in Africa. I don't know if you heard this story a couple of years ago. Um, anyway, she sent this comment off, uh, and then she got on the plane, and it was an 11-hour flight over to South Africa, over uh, to Cape Town, and she had no idea that her comment uh, was being shared by Twitter users all across the world and was creating this huge worldwide storm of controversy. Um, Thousands of people began commenting in outrage and the storm just got bigger and bigger. And by the time Justine landed and got off the plane, uh, she had been branded a racist by tens of, tens of thousands of people she'd never met who had made it their mission to make sure that she got fired from her job before she got off the plane, before she even realised it. Um, Justine was not only fired, she was shamed and ridiculed across the world, all because of one poorly worded uh, tweets all in the space of an 11-hour flight, right? So <laughs> I, I mentioned that story uh, not so that we can sort of talk about whether it was wrong or right or, you know, what she said in a tweet. Um, not that we can make a call about that, but it, because it's a fascinating example, isn't it, of uh, the kind of moral outrage that our world is capable of, right? The kind of moral indignation and outrage um, social media sites like Twitter and Facebook and all of that, if you're, if you're on those, uh, they can enhance that, they can enhance that outrage, that kind of... Out, uh, uh, but uh, people can sort of... Uh, they make it possible for people to, to comment really harsh things without the kind of way that you'd soften your comments if you're speaking to someone face-to-face. -face. Uh, but the heart of the issue isn't a piece of technology. The heart of the issue is the human heart. Uh, it's the way in which we become so easily outraged uh, at the behaviour of someone else, at what we see as someone else's immoral behaviour. The problem is, though, isn't it, that, and we kind of saw it before in the kids' talk, the problem is that while we can be so quick to assume uh, the worst of others, while we can be so quick to judge them, this is true of us, isn't it? We have a different set of standards for ourselves, right? We have a different set of standards for ourselves. Uh, could any of us say that we are just as harsh on ourselves as we are on other people? Really? I mean, if we're really honest, could any of us say that? Uh, don't we all have an inbuilt disposition? You know, when we see something dumb, someone else does something wrong, uh, we can get really, really worked up. But when we do the same sorts of things, I, well, I assume you're like me, you have a whole list of reasons why that's kind of a bit more excusable, right? You have a whole set of uh, reasons. I was tired. I had a lot going on. I, Friends, don't we find it so easy to assume the worst in other people and the best in ourselves, right? It's just... Uh, and that kind of plays into this whole outrage that gets whipped up in our culture today. Well, friends, last week, last week, if you were with us, we started 
the, the uh, main section of Paul's letter to the Romans. We looked at the introduction the week before. Last week we looked at this second half of chapter 1. Uh, Romans, we saw a couple of weeks ago, is all about this incredible gospel. God's gospel, this great announcement to the world that brings incredible joy and peace and life that has just captivated Paul um, about what Jesus has done. It's this great announcement about how the gospel is God's power to save everyone who trusts in Jesus. Uh, And last week, uh, after Paul sort of lays that out, last week at the end of chapter 1, what we saw was Paul starting to, uh, instead of going straight to talking about this, we use the image of a jewel, right? This diamond that Paul is just uh, dazzled by the incredible diamond of the gospel. But before he, he gets to talk directly about that, he starts laying out this black background, the black velvet background, before he places his diamond in the middle of it, the dark background. Last week, uh, we saw that really clearly, this dark background of God's wrath, God's real and righteous and good and just and measured anger against all human wickedness, against at, our, at its heart, against our idolatry, against the way in which we worship created things rather than the Creator. Uh, we saw last week how that plays out in God handing us over to the effects of our idolatry uh, in sexual immorality, in greed, in envy, in murder, in arrogance, and the list sort of went on last week, right? It was pretty full on. I found it pretty full on. <laughs> I suspect others of us who are here did as well. A confronting description of the outworking of what it looks like to turn away from God. There's something really interesting if you were here last week, and if you've got your Bibles open, you can sort of flick back and see. There's something really interesting in what Paul does in that first part of the letter to the Romans, that end of chapter 1. Something really interesting. Uh, It's clearly, from verse 18 onwards, it's clearly talking about all people. God's wrath is being revealed against all the wickedness and godlessness of humanity. Um, But all the way through, did you notice it as we read through last week? How does Paul talk? All the way through, uh, Paul talks about them. They were handed over. Them, 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 them. A description of them, those people. Uh, and he, he, he goes on in chapter 1, all the way through, them, 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 they were handed over. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. And it's kind of like, I, uh, I think there's a few martial arts experts in the room, so I've just got to be careful about what I say here. Uh, it's, uh, from what I understand, it's kind of like... Um, uh, a judo flip. I don't know if you know if you know what uh, what happens in a judo flip. Apparently, from what I understand, you've got a whole lot of energy coming towards you. Uh, you don't have to be really tough and strong to kind of defeat the guy who's coming towards you. All you need to know how to do is redirect the energy that's coming towards you. So you can have a really small guy who knows how to do the flips and everything, uh, and you've got this wave of sort of energy that's going to come and, and instead of pushing back, you just kind of do a judo flip and you're redirected and the other guy ends up somehow on the floor. You can uh, correct me later if I'm wrong about that. Um, it's kind of like 
Uh, it's kind of like that in 2 verse 1. You see, all the way through, uh, as we get to this second chapter, Paul is picturing someone who's hearing this letter being read out to the Roman church. Okay? He's picturing someone who hears this description of them, 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 and all the while they're sitting there nodding their head, right? They're saying, yes, yes, preach it, Paul. Of course they are wicked. Of course they deserve your judgment, God. And then Paul does his judo flip and he takes all that energy and suddenly those people there sitting, nodding their heads vigorously are on the floor, <laughs> splayed out. They, 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 and chapter 2, verse 1, you. You. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever, at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? I think it's a bit hard for us to appreciate just how shocking this would have been for the first people who heard it. Really shocking uh, and offensive. Uh, because the people who heard it were actually outwardly, they were more morally strict than the pagan world around them. Uh, outwardly they were. that The church in Rome, uh, uh, from what we understand, is that it was a mixture of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, uh, uh, a mixture of that, and at least, at the very least, the Jews among them uh, would have heard, with their long history of uh, the Old Testament, uh, they would have heard Paul's description of all the immorality of chapter 1, and they would have been able to say, yes, yes, of course that's wrong. We don't do that. But then Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Yes, you do. Now, what's going on here? What is going on here? Uh, it might be that Jesus' words are in the background here, if you're familiar with Jesus' words, uh, that whoever even looks lustfully at someone in their heart has already committed adultery. Uh, but remember also, it might be that that's sort of in the, in the background of what Paul's saying here. Uh, but rem remember also at the end of chapter 1, if you can flick your eye there or you were here last week, Paul lists off a whole series of this whole description of how our idolatry plays itself out. And did you notice, if you were here, if you can see it, did you notice what's included in there? How are you going at gossiping? Uh, ever disobeyed your parents when you were a kid? Ever slandered someone? Have you ever felt within yourself greed, envy, pride, arrogance? You might not engage in the same activities as were on view, uh, the more extreme ones in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, but don't for a minute think that that sets you apart from those who do. Your root problem is exactly the same. Left to yourself, you do the same things. You worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. 
and you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them. Verse 4, you show contempt for God's grace. God's grace is meant to make you humble and repent of your own idolatry, not make you proud and judgmental. Uh, Continuing with that stubborn and unrepentant heart, Paul says in verse 5, is storing up for yourself wrath on God's day of wrath. I don't think that Paul here is writing against making any kind of judgments about other people. You notice, don't you, that Paul himself is judging judgmental people. Uh, I think he has in view the person who is quick to see the sins of others and quick to excuse their own, which we all are to some extent, aren't we? Uh, who effectively puts themselves in the place of God. Because Paul goes on, only God is able to judge rightly. Only God is able to judge rightly. Uh, If you've got a handout there that's an outline of the sermon, and uh, uh, having sort of judged the judges, Paul goes on to describe this impartial judge, the perfect judge. Uh, Paul isn't saying don't judge like everyone, uh, don't judge because everyone can live how they like. He's not saying that. This is sort of the message that we might get in our world. Don't judge others because everyone can live the way they want. That's not what Paul's saying. Do you see what he's saying here? He's not saying don't judge because there is no judgment. He's saying don't judge because there is a judgment. Don't judge others because there is a judgment and you are under it. (laughs) And you are under it. There is a judge, but it's not you. And while in chapter 1 we saw how God's wrath was being revealed, here and now, Paul here in chapter 2 looks forward to this future day, this future day of God's wrath, the outpouring of this good and just and right anger towards evil and sin and wickedness, this outpouring, this... Uh, that is a function of his love for his world, his his determination to rid his world of all that is evil and all that distorts it. Um, There are different kinds of truths. I don't know if you uh, kind of have thought about this. There's different kinds of truths, and there's what I'll call ice cream truths, and there's what's called bus truths. Okay, There's ice cream truths and bus truths, uh, an ice cream truth is a truth uh, that happens to be about which, you know, it's kind of like the same as which flavour of ice cream you prefer, right? Personally, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, if I have the Neapolitan ice cream in front of me, uh, always I'll go for the chocolate first, right? Any other chocolate? Uh, does any, does, actually, I'd be interested, does anyone go for strawberry first? There are a few strawberry, f- okay. Uh, well, actually, that's fine because this is an ice cream truth, right? It's just your preference it doesn't you know there's nothing depending on it now there's ice cream truths um there's another kind of truth though isn't there it's what i'll call a bus truth it's the kind of truth uh, that if you're standing in the middle of a road kneeling down to tie your shoe uh, and you don't hear or see that there's a bus hurtling towards you um, there is no preference about that truth is there There's no preference about it, and it won't change depending on whether you prefer it to be the case or not. Well, for Paul, this coming day of God's judgment is a bus truth, not an ice cream truth. 
And on that day, Paul says in verse 6, God will repay to each person according to what they have done, including you, you who pass judgment on someone else. There's a fair bit of debate over these verses, what's going on here, particularly verse 6 to 11. Um, My take is that they're fairly straightforward and they basically mean what they say. Uh, There is a coming day of judgment and everyone will come under it. Religious people just as much as non-religious people. Uh, From verse, uh, I'll just read out uh, to verse 6. Oh, we'll start from verse 5, actually. Verse 5, uh, because of your unre- the stubbornness of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay to each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. I think what Paul's getting at here is that this judgment will be according to what you've done. Your life is entirely... and, And he's basically trying to underline the rightness of God, the impartiality of God's judgment. If your life is characterised by persisting in doing good, if your life is, if that is entirely true about your life, that is characterised by seeking glory, honour and immortality, if that that is to say, uh, God will have, God's judgment is fair and just. If that's true, then you will pass it. You'll receive eternal life. He doesn't show favouritism. Of course, if anyone doesn't deserve, of course, if anyone doesn't deserve his wrath, he's impartial. He won't give it to them. He's entirely just and right in his judgment. He's not immoral. Uh, Of course, if there's someone like that, perhaps you think you're like that, you'll be fine, right? There will be glory and honour and peace. Uh, stick around a few weeks with us, though, uh, and we'll hear Paul's own verdict on this, um, that in reality, in fact, no one is in that group. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But Paul's saying here, of course, if you're like that, God will, well, God will judge fairly. Uh, you'll pass that. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, God is likewise... He is fair and just, and you won't be able to get around that. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. Paul's point here, friends, is that God's judgment is true. It is absolutely impartial. He's not going to have the wool pulled over his eyes. He will, he will do what is right, and he will make the right judgment about you, about anyone, any human being. He's not only impartial, though, as Paul goes on, he is the perfect judge. He sees everything. He sees right into the secrets of every person's heart. Right into the secrets of our hearts. Um, That that little paragraph from verse 12 to 16, Paul talks about this distinction between those who have the law 
and those who don't have the law. Uh, the law uh, was uh, God's way, uh, God's way of life that he set out for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, and God's saying, he's, he's, he's sort of expanding his point here, he's saying, uh, not having that law isn't going to be an excuse on that coming day of judgment. Not having it won't be. God will judge according to what people have, not what they don't have. Uh, it's not going to be an excuse. He talks about those who don't know God's law, the Gentiles, and how they do show that in a real sense, uh, these underlying requirements of the law are written on their hearts, on their consciences. God's judgment on them will be totally perfect and good and just. Everyone, he, he sees the secrets and everyone will receive what is, what is right according to their life. He is the impartial and perfect judge. All people come under his judgment. But friends, there's another layer going on here. This is the last kind of section of what Paul writes. There's another layer that we, that we might have a bit of trouble seeing. We might not see it as clearly as the first people who read the letter would see it. Uh, it relates to a particular group of people. We've already mentioned them. Uh, a particular group of people who I think Paul had in mind all the way along. Uh, God's chosen and special people, the people of Israel, the Jews. And Paul talks about this question here. How could it be? How can it be that God would judge Gentiles just the same as he would judge the Jews? Um, just briefly from verse 17 onwards, that's the issue. And the issue all seems to be, from this point, what you rely on. What you rely on. If you want to cast your eye down to verse 17, hopefully it'll come up on the screen too. Uh, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what's superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's already talked earlier in the chapter about showing contempt for God's grace. God had been especially gracious to Israel, to these people, and Paul here turns the spotlight on the people of Israel, on Jewish Christians particularly, it seems to be, who, but who take pride in, who seem to rely on their Jewish identity for how they're going to stand before God. Who seem to think that being Jewish in itself was enough before God. Uh, it didn't really matter how they lived. They had the law. They were God's people. Uh, and while they would nod their heads, right? Well, they would nod their heads at God's judgment on the sin of others. When it came to their own sins, they would make excuses. God would be God will be gracious, right? It's his job to forgive. Uh, I'm one of his people. So that stuff doesn't really matter, right? Uh, in doing that, Paul says, they show contempt for God's grace. 
his kindness because his kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. It's meant to lead them to repentance. All the while, they preach against stealing and then they cheat the tax man themselves. They abhor idols. I'm not entirely sure what it means. They rob temples, probably um, some kind of dishonest behaviour about money. Um, But whatever it is, it's inconsistent with uh, them abhorring the idols of other people, right? They rail against immorality and then in the secret thoughts of their hearts indulge in their own immoral lusts and thoughts and actions. And it gets worse in verse 25. Uh, in verse 25, he goes on and talks about circumcision. Uh, circumcision was the key identity, the key marker of God's people, the key thing that they would take pride in. If all else failed, they could say to God, I am circumcised. I'm a Jew. I'm one of your people. Uh, it defined them so deeply. And again, I think it's hard for us to feel the offence of what Paul writes here uh, at the end of chapter 2. He says, for that person who says, but I've been circumcised, I'm part of God's people, he says, rubbish. Whether you're circumcised or not is absolutely meaningless before God. You can't offer that to God in your defence. Being one of God's people, being a true Jew, has never been about physical outward things. It's always been about the heart, the circumcision of the heart. Friends, there's, um, there's much more to say about this chapter, uh, but at its heart it is Paul's clear and powerful description of the coming judgment of God. He especially focuses uh, in what in the Bible is a really serious sin. You thought you had serious sins last week? Well... Here's a really, really serious one in the Bible, the sin of religious hypocrisy. Uh, If you've read the Gospels, that should be fairly familiar to you. Uh, Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and reserving his sharpest condemnation, his sharpest condemnation for people who relied on their religious identity, who were hard on others but soft on themselves who looked for specks in other people's eyes. You know this great image that Jesus uses? Uh, Who look for specks in someone else's eye all the while not noticing that they've got this massive log hanging out the other one. (laughs) Why is that? Why is it? Well, perhaps it's because those who are obviously sinners, those who know the brokenness and wickedness of their own hearts, they see the reality clearer. They see the reality of their situation before God in a clearer way. They know that they have nothing to offer him. All they can do is not offer their, the things that they do, they not offer their identity as a part of the people of God in the Old Testament, that not offer any, anything else. All they can do is cast themselves on God's mercy. And friends, it seems to me that there are many ways that this word, that this word that is God's word to us today should shape and impact us. Uh, It is a word against the things we take pride in that we think set us apart from everyone else. The things we take pride in. What is it that you 
take pride in. That you think make you a cut above the rest. Or, on the other hand, what do you wish you had (laughs) that you could take pride in that would make you a cut above everyone else? Your intelligence, that job you've worked so hard in, your position, your family heritage, your nationality, your wealth... Uh, but even in, in light of Romans 2, that goes deeper, doesn't it? Not just those things. It talks about religious identity. If God treats Jews and Gentiles just the same, if that distinction doesn't matter before his judgment, well, then no distinction matters. All of these things that matter so much to us. Uh, but the Apostle Paul tells us here, they don't mean anything when it comes to your standing before God. He doesn't, he won't recognise them. He will judge, not on the basis of your external appearance, not on the basis of your works, or of the outward things that you present. He will judge in truth. He will judge the secret things. He sees your heart. Friends, we started today by thinking about outrage. Remember that story of and the way in which we can be so outraged. Romans 2, I don't think that the conclusion of Romans 2 is to say that we shouldn't be outraged. That's not what Romans 2 is saying. Uh, There are many things to be outraged about in this world. I think what Romans 2 underlines and puts in bold in capitals uh, is not that we shouldn't be outraged, Uh, not that there aren't things to be outraged about, what it underlines is that one of those things is you. One of those things is you. And if we can't quite bring ourselves to be outraged about our own sin, as much outraged about that as we are about other people's, we should at least recognise that our sin is equally an outrage to God as anyone else's. Your sin is an outrage to God. He doesn't, not in the sense of what you see uh, in our culture today. We talked about this last week, right? God's anger, his wrath is not the lose your keys uh, kind of fly off the handle wrath. Incidentally, um, we talked about that last week. And then Monday morning, what happened to me? I lost my keys. (laughs) So maybe that's God teaching me something. That's not that kind of fly off the handle anger and wrath, not in that kind of a way. It's not a reactive and thoughtless way, like the people who were on Twitter who hunted down this woman. His wrath is his good, settled anger towards all that is evil, all wickedness, and it flows out of his love for his world that he loves so deeply. But it is real, and it is just and true, And he sees everything, every selfish thought, every loveless action. Friends, one of the fascinating things about this letter to the Romans is that Paul doesn't give any instruction. He doesn't say to do anything all the way up to chapter 6. Okay, So you don't get any sort of instruction from Paul about you know, what you should do in the light of this until you get to chapter 6, and that'll take us a while to get to. Um, 
all the way up to there, what Paul is doing is describing reality. First here, the dark background, and then he'll go on to the wonderful jewel of the gospel and what it means for us. Uh, he's just a, and so, friends, the key response for us, I think, as we read this chapter, the key response is, will you, will you accept this? Will you accept this word as the word of God? Will you let go of all the things you take pride in and all your excuses and today recognize that on your own you are a sinner under the just judgment of God? It's one of the, um, one of the reasons why we read through books of the Bible together and don't just pick and choose the things that we like and... Um, I'm conscious that it's holidays, so there's holiday makers among us. Uh, but one of the benefits of that is you hear things that are uncomfortable to you. Uh, you hear things that perhaps you wouldn't choose to hear yourself. But if God is God and not just a product of our own imagination or our own desires, then when you hear his word, you would expect that, wouldn't you? You'd expect to be confronted by something other than yourself. Will you accept this as the reality? Because friends, I think Paul is clear here, and in the light of where Romans goes, until you do, you are not a Christian. You're not a Christian person. If you are a Christian, perhaps you've forgotten this. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church. It doesn't matter... If you've been baptised or if you belong to a particular denomination, there is nothing that you have done that you'll be able to hold up the certificate about it before God on that last day and present it to him. Until you stop looking around at everyone else and start looking up to God and into yourself, until you recognise that before him you have no excuse until you come empty-handed and cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the only way to approach God. And friends, the wonder and jewel of the gospel, what makes it shine so brightly is that when we do that, there is nothing but life and love and forgiveness and grace and real eternal joy through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the wonder of the gospel. We need the dark background to see it though, don't we? Our friends, wherever you're at today, um, this word does confront us. Um, in a moment we're going to sing a song that speaks, that kind of um, brings together some of these themes. Um, it's a new song for most of us here, I think. So what we're going to do is we're going to just play it. Uh, uh, and you can sing along, stay seated, sing along if you want, or just meditate on the words as they come up. Um, the main thing, though, isn't it, from this passage, friends, for all of us, uh, is to grapple with this question. Uh, have I, have you, have you recognised this as true for yourself 
not just for other people, but for yourself, and recognizing it as true, have you held out your hands and cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The hope and wonder of the gospel is that you do that and he will, he will have mercy on you. Not just now, but always. I'll pray for us and then we're going to sing in response. Um, gracious Father, please keep us from hypocrisy. Please keep us from being more uh, captured by and focused on uh, the sin in other people's hearts uh, than the very real the very real sin in our own hearts. Lord, please forgive us for our own turning away from you, for worshipping created things rather than you, our creator. Uh, Lord, may each of us today, may we each have a, a fresh, a fresh, perhaps even a new for the first time encounter with you, our God, who is just and impartial and will see the secret things Lord, may we know that we have no excuse before you, nothing in our hands can we bring to you, but simply to your cross we cling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.